for you, what does the word intentional mean? Intentional. I think of what I, what do you personally want? What is it that you want out of life? And I think see a lot of people that just don't really distill that down to figure out and write down. Um, you, it's hard to get a bunch of things out of life. Like you can probably only get a couple. And I think uh, one thing that was really helpful for me was to just, I've got a, I've got a list of four, maybe you can do five. I don't know, but you can't do much more than that. There's just not enough time and not enough focus. So you need to decide and rank. What is it that you want out of life? What are, what are you going to be intentional about? Uh, because that's where your time needs to go. And I think it's really easy to have those out of order mixed up and it's hard to, especially in entrepreneurship, it's hard, it's hard to make progress when those are out of, out of whack. Welcome to the Intentional Growth Podcast, the show that teaches you how to grow the value of a company with an end in mind. Host Ryan Tansom interviews top business leaders, authors, entrepreneurs, and other professionals who share their experience and expertise about buying, growing, and selling companies. How's everybody doing? Thanks for tuning back in this week. This is episode 268, and we're interviewing Baird Hall about he started, scaled, and sold Wave, the SaaS company for sharing podcast audio clips. Baird started as a sales engineer selling data integration systems at a startup in Charleston, and he was always looking for a creative outlet to do his own thing, which led him naturally to becoming an entrepreneur. And the three things that he's done is he, he created Utalk at the very beginning. Think about it like Clubhouse for uh, sports talk. And he did that in 2015. He lost all of his savings after trying to create a business out of it for a couple of years and pivoted because podcasters started reaching out to him and asking him how they could share audio clips of the podcast online, which eventually turned into the company Wave in 2017. Uh, Baird and his partner scaled Wave, and they scaled it all up to $1.5 million in annual recurring revenue and 200,000 users with no employees. And then they sold Wave, Baird and his partner sold Wave to a software portfolio company and negotiated the entire sale using the software platform Slack. And today, Baird is going to be talking about how he started, scaled, and sold the company and what he learned throughout the process. He talks about the right mindset and how to stay in check so you can stay true to yourself and do everything for the right reasons. And if you let your ego get in the way, why all those anxieties are going to come in and then how to know you're off track and then how to course correct once you realize you're off track. And I'm super pumped about this episode because I believe Barrett is a very good example of being intentional. He's very self-aware. And he continues to do the hard work to keep himself in the creative zone that he's identified is the place he wants to be. During this interview, it just reaffirmed to me my belief that if we as business owners know how to create enterprise value and the different strategies that we have available to tap into the financial asset that we've created without leaving the day-to-day, or on the flip side, we might find ourselves where we want to be like actually in the day-to-day but actually tap the financial assets so it's really having this complete spectrum available to us of how you want to evolve your role as a as a manager or executive and how that's different from managing this financial asset and the role you have as a business owner and how you want to tap the equity or change your roles i think by learning the technical nature of how to grow enterprise value tap the financial asset and transition role you're going to create more options and have more control over that ultimate journey that you are going to be going down. And if you want to know more about how to do this, the best thing to do is to check out the Intentional Growth Training. 
And we have a five video series and the intentional growth vision board that if you want access to it, you can text the word intentional to 66866 and you'll get the intentional growth vision board and the five videos that will help you clarify your vision and how to build a valuable company so you can focus on getting progress towards that ultimate vision that you have for the company. Thanks so much for tuning in and I hope you enjoyed this interview with Baird. Sponsored by Arcona's Intentional Growth Digital Course. Ryan Tansom and Pat Hobby show you how to shift your mindset away from solving for annual income to focusing on strategies that create long-term value, giving you the freedom and choices to take control of the future destiny of your business. Accelerate your knowledge with 36 videos and dozens of exercises that combine decades of experience buying, growing, and selling companies. Learn more by going to arcona.io or visiting the show notes. Eric, how are you doing, man? I'm good. Happy to be here. It's always nice to take a break from work and chat entrepreneurship. <laughs> yeah, and uh, you got your fingers in quite a few, uh, a few different ventures as usual from what I've gathered from uh, some of the other things as I was poking around and some of the things you've been doing. And, yeah, uh, I should probably, uh, <laughs> I, in hindsight, maybe after my la uh, last exit, should have taken some time off, but it was just on to the next thing and just keeping at it. <laughs> Yeah, and the, the question is, what do you do if you take the time off, right? You can you were just talking about golf, and you can only golf so many rounds, right? Yep. No, that's <laughs> totally true. Yeah. Well, I uh, I, I'm, I'm I want to take us back for like how you jumped into entrepreneurship, but like before even that, um, I I was telling you right before we hit record that, you know, we use your product. My my marketing team does. Awesome. Their gra as Craig from Castos is kicking out the uh, the audiograms, and then I'm like, well, what do we do with these things? And lo and behold, my team on your your product and i got the email that you'd sold and i was like well that's just too fitting because that's what this yeah. show is about awesome <laughs> so it come full circle so I, why don't you just take us back man like you know what you know when did you become an entrepreneur you got your hands in quite a few ventures so maybe just kind of give us the how did you get started into into this space and then what do you what are you up to these days it's funny my first dabbling in entrepreneurship is i created a website for people with GoPros that wanted to post their GoPro footage uh, for their no local way. communities. It was just charlesongopro.com. And I posted like four or five GoPro videos and then lost track of the project. I was like 23 at the time and just did it for fun. And somebody emailed me and was like, hey, you know, I want to buy your website for 500 bucks. And we met at Starbucks. <laughs> he gave me $500 cash. I gave, no him the I gave him the login to the Squarespace and went home. My, I was living with my sister at the time. And uh, we went to dinner that night, spent all $500 of it. But it was just this weird moment where it's like, whoa, you can just make money on the internet. You can just create things on the internet and people will pay you for it. Uh, it's just kind of this ding, you know, ding, ding. Yeah, just, it, just a really small little um, thing that started tugging at me over and over again. So I was working for a uh, startup here in Charleston as a sales engineer helping sell uh, big data integration systems. Um, it's a great, great business, but um, like ERP systems or something like that. Uh, we, we actually sold just the integration piece for CRMs, so we would move data from one oh. source into CRMs. Oh, cool. It's really, really niche business, bootstrap business too, which was actually really great to work for one of those um, mm. as we were growing. Um, but I just always had this nudge, and I think at the time I didn't know why I wanted to start my own thing. Looking back, I've always been searching for a creative outlet, and I've never been able to find it until entrepreneurship. I love being able. I didn't know this at the time. I was just following my gut instinct. 
But looking back, I just had this desire to create things and I'm not good with my hands. Uh, I'm not artistic, and I, but I have been able to find this creative outlet in building businesses and products and you know, trying to sell them to the market. How fun, man. And so what was uh, outside of the $500 domain for cash and dinner? <laughs> what, where did it lead you? Where, what, what, was the net, what was the first venture that uh, got you started? So the first venture was I was on the sales road all the time listening to I'm a huge sports fan. I listen to sports radio nonstop. Um, and I was always frustrated with the people that called in. It was always poor quality. The people that actually would pick up the phone and dial into a radio station, you know, just it's not great content. And mm -hmm. I always felt like there was this big missing opportunity for listeners of sports shows to be able to submit audio and listen to each other's comments and basically talk sports. Oh, so, yeah. Um, yeah, I convinced uh, one of my friends to um, help me build the mobile app. And we built this audio based what now is like Clubhouse and Twitter spaces. We tried mm -hmm. to do that five years ago just for sports. There's actually one called Locker now. So we were way too early. The tech wasn't ready. Um, the, you know, the audio market podcasts were really still kind of in 2015 starting to like really ramp up. So 100%. we were way too early, but we spent uh, almost two years working on that business and we had a lot of fun, but we just made all the mistakes. We, you know, we built first without talking to people. We um, didn't have a business plan. Uh, we had no idea how we would generate revenue, even if we could start getting these, um, you know, a lot of people using it. We tried to then like at the last minute, take it to the radio industry and sell it. And that was a just total mistake of misreading, you know, that industry. So the whole thing was, you know, quote unquote, a failure. Obviously, we learned a lot from it, but um, it didn't really take off like we thought it would. But the beauty of that failure was that we built this little tool that took audio clips from our users and allowed it, uh, uh, basically took those audio clips and created a video for Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. And uh, we use that internally as a marketing tool. So when we were spinning mm -hmm. that company down, we were using that as like this last ditch marketing tactic. Mm -hmm. and, and podcasters started emailing us or tweeting us uh, and saying like, I don't understand your app, but how did you... How'd you do that? How'd you, how'd, you take, yeah, how'd you take audio? And it was just light bulb moment. Like, oh my gosh, we have been like pushing this idea of mine up the hill, like a boulder, as opposed to, radio, to, to like old school radio too. Oh, of all exactly. Things, right? <laughs> yeah. Which man, uh, just, you know, terrible industry to, to choose. Um, especially yellow, tech, yellow pages and radio. I'll go like, right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So this light bulb went off. We're like, man, we're, we're doing this all wrong. We're like trying to take this idea that we think is amazing as opposed to listening to customers in the market and hearing what they think and trying to follow them. So we just kind of threw out this uh, audio marketing tool to podcasters and, you know, it was hard. It was definitely hard getting those first 10, 50 customers, but then it was just, we felt the pull. Like it's hard to explain that if you haven't felt that pull in your business before, but People were just, you know, they would come to our website and just ask, like, how do I do this? How can I make this better? I, you know, I want to do X, Y, or Z to my video. Um, and just, you could just feel it. And so we just kept working on it. And um, that that's what turned into Wave, which is the product you were talking about earlier, um, which is used by 200,000 podcasters. Um, it grew to, we, we grew it to um, about like one and a half million ARR and uh, sold it earlier this year. So that was like our first, you know, kind of first hit, I would say. And when I say we, I've, I've got a few partners that I work with that are 
mostly technical and, and I do all the sales marketing and uh, all the kind of front house stuff. That's awesome, man. And I appreciate the context. And, um, yeah, and we're going to unpack that too, because I, I as I was uh, poking around on some of the things that you've been doing, you, you wrote on Trinky, uh, a pretty cool article about what you'd learned. And, um, so I want to uh, peel that apart, but before we do it, just kind of for the timeline. So as you were spinning down this, uh, the, the first one, did you guys just jump right into wave and like, you just kind of just like transferred your energy into that or like, how did that no, transition? We actually, no, we were out of money and out of savings. So we were actually shutting that business down and then we went and got contracting gigs, but that left us, they weren't full time. So it left us like 10, 15 hours a week, 20 hours a week. Um, to work on this on the side. So it was very much like, um, you know, go pay the bills. And then with extra time, let's keep working mm -hmm. on it, keep selling it and pushing it. And the goal with Wave, to be honest, was we were hoping that one day it could pay our mortgages, like, and just be this passive income tool on the side um, that, that would, you know, pay Nick and I's uh, mortgage, which sounded amazing. And we just kept working on it. And every month we'd see five, 10% month over month growth. And it just kind of kept up into the right. And it took a long time. I mean, it took us, it took us almost two years to hit 10 K revenue, uh, 10 K MRR. So, you know, I mean, that's kind of a grind looking back, but kind of, man, I, I can relate. I've been, <laughs> I've been there. You, you, yeah. you got, okay, we're going to do some consulting over here. We're kind of chasing our dream over there. We got, you know, yep. the family's got to make sure that the, the money's coming in to yep. pay the bills. Yeah. My wife likes to joke that she was, she's our angel investor. Cause she was, <laughs> Uh, kind of keeping the finances together with her job while I was going off doing this stuff. Also with with emotional capital, right? <laughs> yep, that too. Maybe more importantly. So um, what I found, you know, I was listening to one of your interviews. It was on a YouTube um, channel. I can't remember the gentleman's uh, podcast, but you know, on the Turnkey pod or on the on the blog, you were very articulate with what you learned, man. Like I, I was very shocked and like, and very surprised because you, you explained like why and how things worked. And you know, when you're talking about, you know, throwing a couple, couple grand into a company and, and scaling a software company, what I find interesting Barrett is that so many people raise money, right? They go and they dilute the company and you know, they go just that there's more retention, uh, you know, put towards, you know, seed round, mm -hmm. A round, B round, you know, all that kind of stuff these days. So like, just give me your mindset, man. Like, like when you started that and you got your co-founder and you're trying to pay your bills and stuff like that, like, and you're liking the creative juices, like what was going through your head? And like, what, like, yeah, man, just super curious. Um, it was very much like in the moment, um, you know, we weren't thinking about raising money cause we couldn't, there was, you know, it was a $12 subscription cost. Um, podcasting really hadn't matured from a, like investors weren't really putting money into the podcast market at that point. And we also didn't really have a, you know, much of a business case at that point to raise money. So we just kind of, you know, we set that goal of having to pay our mortgages and then kept consulting and working on on the side and just pushing it and pushing it. Um, you know, I, I found like across all my projects, it's very much like not when I'm focused on outcomes, it's usually my ego getting in the way. And that usually throws me off course when I'm working on something because I like it and I think it has opportunity and I think it's fun and creative that usually results in much better outcomes for me. And that was very much at the time we were just, we had customers coming in we had a lot of people talking to us and there was motion and we were just kind of, you know, following the, what was in front of us rather than sitting down and, you know, articulating some incredible, 
business plan that we were going to scale and grow. It was just very much kind of just following, um, kind of following the pull, I guess it's the best way to put it. No, I, I'm, I'm following you. And I'm curious, like when you say if you're focused on the outcome, your ego gets in the way. Why do you think that? I, that's always been, whenever I get off track in entrepreneurship for me personally, this has taken a lot of introspective thought. And go, when I've gone through anxiety periods to like, step back and look back. It's always been around trying to fit some model of success that I think other people have. Like mm-hmm. um, selling the business was definitely one of them. Like I felt like that was some badge I had to get, you know, from an entrepreneurial standpoint and looking back, nobody really cares. Um, I mean, it, you, you know, I mean, it was like a you know, blog post that kind of got around for a little bit, but um, I've definitely found that like, I need to be focused on, why I do something. And for me, it's creativity. I like building new things and I like people. I love it when people use them. And, and the pinnacle for me is when somebody uses my product, pays for it, and then tells somebody else about it. Like that is mm-hmm. what, that's when I really feel valued as a creator. Um, mm-hmm. So when I'm doing that and just kind of chasing my interest and my curiosity, things go so much smoother. Whenever I'm you know, doing the opposite of that and just worrying about like, oh, I need to hit this milestone or this outcome, that's usually when I'm getting off track, I'm focusing on the wrong things and it slows me down. So it's just, I always just have to keep myself in check um, and make sure I'm doing things because for the right reasons. Yeah, man. Uh, the name of the show is called intentional growth, right? <laughs> and it's uh, the Good, I hope I won't get too deep there. No, no. Oh my gosh, man. I have had more people on the, like more people on the show talking about mindset and all this stuff mm-hmm. because like, and then, so we actually created this, uh, our business that has spun out of so the, the, the podcast and all the material I've learned is these five principles. The first one is your mm-hmm. drivers. What do you want from your business and why? Like, where do yep. you want to live? Because, you know, to your point, and I don't know if when you say focus on outcomes, it's, if it's a lot of people focus too much on the money. We're like, I believe yep. that entrepreneurship, man. And I'm curious, like, as you're talking about your other, uh, gigs is like, I believe that running businesses, you can literally create wealth and design your ideal life at the same time. But mm-hmm. most people are like bifurcating them and saying, oh, I'm either going to be a yep. broke artist <laughs> or some you yep. know, super wealthy VC firm that, you know, VC that has no life and, you know, sold your soul. And I just don't mm-hmm. believe that you have to have one or the other. Yeah, I agree. And one of the things that I think a lot of people, uh, uh, new entrepreneurs, the mistake they make is they don't do a good job matching their personalities to the business. Like, you know, personality profiling, you know, you know, has a lot of value and, um, I don't think it's an end all be all, but I think there's so many different types of entrepreneurship that cater to different types of people. Like, mm-hmm. some, like I would be the worst franchise operator in the history of the world following detail, you know, operations that somebody gives me, you know, even if it had this massive million dollar opportunity to run a franchise, I'd be the worst at it. Um, mm-hmm. It's the same thing. Like not everybody should be like creating software from scratch. You might be better at services. You might be better at consulting, whatever it may be. So um, I think that's another thing that, you know, you, you really want to get your why, like what you want to do and why, mm-hmm. and then make sure it matches who you are. Because running a VC-backed software company takes a very specific set of, you know, personality traits, in my opinion. 100%. Um, compared to somebody like me, like we just, and again, we lucked out that we tried to do the VC route on the first company. The second company, we couldn't raise money, so we wound up bootstrapping it. And looking back, I didn't know at the time, but bootstrapping just fits my personality so much more. It allows me to have freedom to you know, try different things, go in different directions. And 
you know, there's much less pressure because I get to set what the actual goals and expectations are, which I'd rather do that and make less money than make a ton of money and having to like, you know, constantly hit all these different check boxes along the way. But some people thrive in that, you know, great salespeople like thrive in that situation. So I think it's just, you really have to examine who you are and what you want. A lot of internal thought and processing as you go along, which is really hard to do. It's a lot easier to just kind of, you know, follow what everybody you know, whatever the hot topic is of the day and just go do it. I, I mean, honestly, man, <laughs> couldn't, couldn't agree more. If you went to our website, it's like, who, who are you? What do you want from your business? And why? <laughs> it's awesome. awesome. <laughs> so like, how, how did you figure this out though? Right. Cause like, you know, there's been people on my show that are in their sixties, big companies sold, then depressed because they didn't figure this out. And you're at a fairly young age figuring this out. Like, how did you figure it out? And then how do you, how did you determine when you're off track? Um, I, you know, failure is the, one of the best ways to figure out uh, what you don't like and what is not a good fit for you, because that's usually why it fails. Uh, of course, luck's a big, you know, sometimes things fail just because you're unlucky, of course. But, um, you know, you, you hear that term all the time in startups like, oh, go fa- fail fast, fail fast. Like, well, what's the point of failing fast? And the whole point of that is to learn. And so you can if you can learn what doesn't work and what is not a good fit for you that's going to help you. It's, it's easier to like cross things off the list than try to mm-hmm. pick the most optimal outcome. Um, mm-hmm. So, I mean, that, that was for us. I mean, I spent two years trying to raise VC money and, and run a, you know, B2C company. Like I, I spent a long time trying to do it and it took two years for me to realize like, Oh, this is not a good fit for me. And this is, <laughs> that's why it wasn't working. Cause it just was, I wasn't the person to build that business. Yeah. Um, somebody else was, and they went on and did it, you know, somebody has gone and and done that. So, um, yeah, failure. And then, um, you know, I can be hard headed sometimes. So it does take, you know, I have been in situations where, um, it it has taken me months to like realize for me personally, it's always been when anxiety comes in with the business, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that's when usually I've let something get off track. And I've started focusing on the wrong things. Um, and so when I feel I, I'm now just this year starting to realize, like, if I'm feeling super anxious about a business, that's because something is kind of, you know, something's off. Um, and I, of course, you know, correct. When you're, when, when you're feeling that, because I think and the reason the question, Barrett, is that I think mm-hmm. a lot of entrepreneurs think that, oh, that's just part of the gig. And I, I, I think that that's, doesn't have to be that way. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's a good question. Um, I've been really lucky to have good partners um, that I can go to and say, hey, guys, like, you know, something's not working here. Can we adjust? Like, you know, do we need to pivot? Do we need to try something different? Should we shut this down? You know, is it time to quit? Um, so I guess there's a lot. There's no great answer for that. But, I, you know, being able to lean on either peers or mentors that you have to help you work through these things and figure out where you are, where's the business, where's it going? Should we, should it even continue forward? Things mm-hmm. like that. Um, you know, for me, I've, I always have to have collaboration to work through those thoughts and talk through stuff, but yeah, that's me personally. So, um, that's a good question. I should, I should spend more time thinking about like course correcting strategies because it's really important. Yeah. Like, I mean, and, and I think there's a couple different, couple of different types of courses that are happening in parallel one is like your because we talk a lot about uh in our in our show now but also like there's your job which is your role in the business and then you're creating yep. this financial asset and you don't have to work 
in your financial asset if you actually separate the two. So you can kind of mm-hmm. course correct in two different lanes. And most people don't think about it like that. And it's just interesting, like, you know, what people do to go, okay, something's off now. Like, how are we going to deal with it? And mm-hmm. just like, like you just, what I gather from what you just said, just like listening to yourself going, yep. I'm not having very much fun right now. What are we going to do about it? Yep. Yeah. So what is the creative, you know, as you're building wave and cause you've got, did you have all these com- other companies going on at the same time? Cause you, you yeah, keep so talking we, about the creative. Yeah. So we created wave in 20, um, that was 2016 took so far the first, every business has taken about two years to get up and going. So wave took two years to kind of get rolling. And then we kept having users asking us to add captions to the, uh, uh you know, social videos that we were creating. Cause Captions are really important for uh, attention span on social. Um, and every time we spec'd it out, it was a huge project. So we decided, well, maybe this this video captioning tool can live on its own and then integrate in Power Wave. Um, so we did that and launched Subtitle in 2018, um, which um, has now turned into, it's been interesting that we were just doing video captioning with Subtitle. And now it's turned into a full social video editing tool to help people get their videos ready for social, social media success. Um, so we ran, we're still running subtitle. Um, it's growing, it's doing really well. And then as we were running those two businesses, very high volume, low average revenue per user, uh, freemium style businesses, churn was just always a huge problem for us. And we spent a whole Mm -hmm. year just focused on churn for both companies. Uh, and our big, one of our biggest successes was optimizing our cancellation flow. So this was kind of solving our own problem, trying to mm-hmm. save customers as they were canceling. Uh, and it worked so well that we then pulled that out and turned that into turnkey, which is uh, what we're also, we, we launched that uh, this earlier this year, January of this year, we launched it. Um, and this is right our in first the middle of your sale. Like, why not? Right. <laughs> it was crazy. Yeah. It was uh yeah. Three. Yeah. We did three months of due diligence while we were launching a new company. It was, yeah, it was too much. <laughs> uh, um, before we go to go into the process uh, that you guys went through, but so why didn't you guys, I mean, I, first of all, I love the fact that you're like listening to your own problems and the mm-hmm. customer's problems, but then, so I, I want to hear about how you did that. But before we get into that, why didn't, why didn't you keep them all into one company and keep piling the profits in to, to build a one big company? It's a, we, we get that question a lot. Um, it would have been nice if we could have designed that as a master plan. But again, kind of going back to like we were just always in the moment and it made sense um, at that time we had – the reason subtitle was separate is because we had some partners that weren't ready to take on risk to really spend a whole year okay. building that, building that new business out. So we had to create two different entities there and then just integrate the two. Um, and actually really that's kind of been the main reason is just, you know, one partner has a kid and, you know, wants to take some time to relax while we're starting, you know, if we're starting a new company every two years, it's not always a you know, perfect timing for everybody. So that's, that's why we've kind of split them out. And honestly, I think it's worked really well that way because every company, the incentives are really strong for the people that had the ability to take risks at that moment. They have skin in the game. They see the opportunity. If it was one big company and we were like shifting people around, it, my concern is that, you know, people might not have the same kind of vigor um, mm-hmm. since, mm-hmm. you know, the, the incentives might not be perfectly aligned. So it's worked out pretty well. You know, it, it would be nice if we could kind of have this, kind of venture studio type approach and kind of do it all under one house. But uh, we're just kind of going with the flow. 
No, no, I, I think it's a, it, and it, I think it is a common situation, Bear, because like, especially more like if you're not raising money and you're more in the startup phase, you truly mm-hmm. need, you either have to get funding to pay people's salaries or you mm-hmm. have to have the founders who are also doing the work. And I think that is the one caveat, like for the listeners that they hear me say the ownership versus, you know, management role a lot. But like when you're in the more of the startup, you can, you can either have to get funding to pay for people's salaries or the people have to do the work through sweat yeah. equity. And it does become very challenging to get that done. Um, so then going back to my other question is, you know, understanding what to launch. Like, is, are you the visionary? Are you listening to the customers? Are you listening to your own problems? I mean, how are you identifying where these opportunities are? Yeah, that's generally been my job is either evaluating the market and looking for patterns is kind of my general approach. Um, I mean, both of the first two companies, we served creators. And even though we weren't creators, we didn't have a podcast, we didn't create videos. It was still really easy to go on social media and see how people were using it, what people were asking for. I mean, you can search for things and look in comments. Um, so so that's, that was the first way for those first two businesses. It was very much like, let's go see what's happening in the market. Let's create some little things and, you know, see what the feedback is and then listen to those customers and, you know, allow them to help build the product. That was really the biggest change for me in entrepreneurship was the first two years, it was all about my idea. What, you know, how can I make my idea better? The Mm -hmm. shift was how can we give this little idea to customers and let them turn it into something that it needs to be as opposed to, and then it takes all the pressure off me too. It's more about like, I'm just taking a little tiny idea and putting it out to the market and let's see what it becomes. Um, so that's very much been our process. Um, now with Cherokee has been a little different because we solved our own problem first and mm-hmm. then we, we built the product because we had to build it for ourselves anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we're now taking this product to a market um, that wasn't really asking for it. So it has been a different learning experience of how do you educate a market that's not asking for something, but really needs it. Um, so what's the difference, the experience you've had with educating a market versus huge. listening to the market? I mean, in, in what could, ways? Um, well, the first thing is, um, you know, running an inbound business, which wave and subtitle were fully inbound. There was no, I mean, aside from paid ads, everything was, you know, put out content, um, have users putting out content, user generated content, and just have as much content out as we can. And then, you know, it's a funnel inbound funnel to the product. Um, Turnkey is almost the opposite where we need to, uh, people aren't at, you know, they're not out there asking for this product, but they really need it. You know, most, most founders aren't waking up. Like the first thing they would say in the morning is not, Oh my gosh, I want to fix my voluntary churn. Like that's what I'm going to focus on today. They're thinking about hiring growth, all these other things. Um, so, you know, educating the market first has to be, it's less content and it's more thought leadership. Both of them are content, but it's less like volume play and it's more very well written, um, you know, thought leadership pieces that are explaining why somebody should be doing something. Mm-hmm. So we've gone we've gone from, um, you know, a bunch of demand out there saying, hey, come use this product and try it out to basically convincing people that they need to do something different. You have a problem and this exists. (laughs) Yep. And also direct sales is um, probably the the biggest difference that, you know, when you, when you have a market where there's a product where there's not existing demand out there, 
generally you need direct sales to go get it. So that has been a big shift for me that realizing like, oh, I need to go get this business and I need to be mm -hmm. on LinkedIn, you know, hitting people up directly and, you know, setting up meetings, setting up demos. Um, so it's much more, I would say also the thing about B2B that I'm finding compared to um, the previous businesses is much more relational. People are really, you know, it's um, the best customers we've gotten have been through referrals, less word of mouth, but like somebody that I've actually talked to and have spent time with and have, you know, traded value with, um, you really, it seems like in B2B, you need to build up kind of, you know, social equity almost. I don't know what the right term is, but. No, um, that, no that is exactly what the right term is. Yeah. 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 I mean, and trust um, and making sure that people yep. understand you're not going to do the bait and switch and. Exactly. Yep. So uh, that's, that's been really different too, because um, the other, you know, the businesses before they're just volume plays. I need a thousand people mm -hmm. on my landing page and I know I'm going to get about 2% of them to convert, you know, from free to, to paid. So it's um, super interesting topic that I, because like, I, I personally experienced this too, Baird in like, um, so first of all, I, the pricing, and I don't know if you've done this with your pricing because understanding how to price the cost of client acquisition with direct sales and the, like what you're mm -hmm. talking about versus I'm going to have a bunch of people in the Philippines crank out content that's pretty easy and optimized for SEO. The pricing model has to be different for you to actually make the margins. Mm -hmm. And one one last comment on that is like, because I've been like in the last five, six years, I went from the copier sales, right? Like literally door knocking to yeah. this whole online space by accident with the, the podcasting. And dude, I bought so much shit from like Ezra's Facebook marketing platform and Lewis House's webinar thing and like yeah, yeah. this whole thing. And I'm like, I had thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars that I had spent. And I just finally was like, I'm in B2B and like none of this shit's ever going to work for me. And yeah. like, and, and like, yeah. I didn't listen to myself. And instead I was like, looks going to these conferences thinking I could automate like my sales process. And I'm just like, this is just insane. So I'm just, I don't even know if there's even a question there or if you've kind of experienced the same thing. Yeah, no, it's, it, 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 that's what I'm experiencing right now between, you know, these two different businesses is um, just the tactics. It, it's interesting, even between wave and subtitle, which were very similar products, it's interesting how every business is so unique. And that's what I love about it is, you know, it could be just the way your product is positioned or who uses your product could help determine how it's going to grow. Um, mm -hmm. So with like, for our example, when we're working with SaaS founders, it turns out they all talk to each other. They're all They're all in these little community groups Communities and, uh, for sure, and they're on Twitter. <laughs> and, and it turns out when, when we can build relationships with a few of them, they wind up sharing it in those other communities. Um, so like, that's not something that, some, I mean, I'm sure there's plenty of people out there that are suggesting that as a tactic, but it wasn't until we really dug into who our customers are, where do they spend their time, and how mm -hmm. can we get our message in front of them that then we kind of, I guess that's the concept, like going back to first principles, like mm -hmm. listening to other, I think listening to other people, like you were saying, those, you know, there's tons of gurus out there. And I think those are great for inspiration, but mm -hmm. then you need to go back to your, own independent thinking, uh, every, you know, switch back and forth. Um, I mm -hmm. think it's kind of a good strategy or at least that's what I've tried to do. Yeah. Amen, man. Um, so going back to wave. So as you guys are growing and, you know, again, you, you seem very intuitive with like how much fun you guys are having and what's going on mm -hmm. in the marketplace. Where did, you know, I'm assuming throughout the course you started paying your mortgage and you went, yeah, yep. now what? <laughs> so like, yep. 
How did your mindset and like the goals change as you were, as you guys were growing? The mindset, the mindset really shifted. Well, I'll take you back to like the breakthrough of the business. Cause I think mm-hmm. this is interesting. So we had been helping podcast creators. Uh, our whole goal in the first year and a half of business was how can we make it easier for podcasters to take clips and put them on social media? And we got we got pretty good at that. And we got that up to 10K MRR and it was it was growing pretty well. Um, and then we really started talking to our customers and like really trying to listen to them and spend a lot of time doing customer discovery. And what we found out that really changed everything for us is that podcasters didn't just want to share clips of their podcasts on social media. They wanted it to look like nobody else. And they wanted it to fit their branding and pop and like look good on social media. And so we built this editor where people could change colors, move things around, kind of like Canva. And um, once we did that, people started really loving it because once they could like put their logo on it and like change the animation to like fit around the logo and then all these different things that, when people, I know exactly. What yeah. You're about. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then when, you, when people started sharing that on social media, then they really started talking about it. They were, they would really promote us because they wanted people sense. to look at their video. Um, so anyway, when that happened, that's when we started growing 15, 20% month over month. And, we kind of feel like we had to unlock something and decided mm-hmm. like, okay, it's time. I'm going to go work on this full time. My um, business partner was an engineer. He was still working on it part time then. Um, well, part time for him is like 30 hours to 40 hours a week anyway. Um, but <laughs> Did I catch um, in one of the interviews that your partner was, a, was or is an attorney. Yep. Yeah. Former lawyer. Okay. He, yeah. He's a really interesting guy. He passed the bar, woke up the next day and said, I think I want to be a software developer. And, um, <laughs> And, did he uh, fund his own his own law school, or did he just drive his parents absolutely crazy with that decision? You sh- so, if any of you all have um, are interested, you know, have student debt or are interested in student debt stories, his name's Nick Fogel. Um, he had his own law school debt, and he paid it off, and it's pretty impressive. He's got a great story about that. Um, just That's awesome. the whole process. That's awesome, um, man. Yeah, that, that was part of the journey. <laughs> Yeah, that doesn't make again. Yeah, what's more, mortgage or uh, student debt? Probably, yep. uh, <laughs> probably the student debt in that case. Yeah. So, um, well, going back to the growth story of Wave, and what I find interesting, Baird, is that you know that's a lot of growth. Fifteen percent year, you know, month over month. I mean, you compound mm-hmm. that annually, and you go. I mean, like it's interesting. That, so, for example, software versus like I got clients that are manufacturers or professional services. And like you literally sometimes can't scale that fast because you'll go bankrupt. Yep. You'll just run yep. out of money. So how did you guys handle that growth? And, you know, like how did you guys start to shift your – as you're getting in full time, how did you guys accommodate for it? We spent – we definitely spent a good portion. I can't remember exactly how many months or maybe even close to a year where we were hitting this growth and we decided – you know, okay, this company's starting to do well. Uh, we do want to work on this full time. Um, obviously, if we stopped and worked on it full time, then that's going to reduce what we can put back into the business. Mm-hmm. So we decided to set a target MRR and say, okay, until we hit this point, we're going to take every dollar that this company makes and we're going to reinvest it back. And that was the first time that we started hiring uh, software developers. We hired a content marketer to start writing the blog posts. We hired a social media person, all contractors, um, and we started managing them in addition to some of the other stuff that we were doing. Um, so we just reinvested constantly. And yeah, it's a great point. Like services business can get up and going a lot faster 
this was a much slower on-ramp, but then when you hit that point, you can scale, you know, about as far as your churn will let you. Um, and that was, that was kind of the strategy that we took there. Uh, and I can't remember the exact dollar amount when we like went full time on it, but uh, it took a while. But you, but you got to a point where you said, okay, we've got to this point. Now we can start taking money out of the business and start yep. rewarding ourselves a little bit. Yep. What, um, you know, what I've gathered because of your creative desire, was there a point in the business infrastructure wise or customer wise where you're just like, mm, this is not as fun as it was before? Yeah. Yeah. There was, I mean, that was last year. We, we got to a point. Uh, so actually it's actually an interesting story with churn key. So we spent a whole year working on churn because it was really what was keeping our valuation down uh, and our, mm -hmm. our ceiling as well. Cause we were just losing 12, 14% churn, which is insane. Mm -hmm. Um, and we spent eight months just doing nothing but analyzing churn and working on it because what we found was that if we can reduce churn by half a point, we could run the math and, and see how much it affected our uh, growth rate and, and our growth ceiling. And that was, to be honest, was the moment, even though mm. we, we did a pretty good job, it was when we find ourselves being extremely scientific like that, I mean, that's a pretty granular thing to say like half a percentage point makes a big difference in your MRR. We started realizing like, you know, we're not scientists like that, and that's what we needed. We like, we really need an operator to come in that can be more analytical that, you know, product analytics, um, you know, revenue analytics, all those things. Uh, the company just got to a size where we were doing very, very microscopic focused operations, um, which were very needed, but that was kind of the feeling we we're like, oh man, this, uh, and honestly, it was part of that was we didn't want to do it. But also we just realizing like the business, this is what the business needs. Like it's, it's probably time for us to exit in the near future. So super interesting. Cause that's obviously the, the triggering point then like, what, what do you do next? What, what did you guys do next? Because I think when people get there and that, that's, you know, that's the entire point of why I started this show five years ago is like no one usually not, it's getting, you know, more, more predominant that there's options, but like, what did you get? Where'd you guys turn? How did you guys start to process that whole choice? Well, the first, so I guess our first thought was, okay, well, we can hire people to do this, um, which did sound appealing. Um, but also at the same time, we were taking out this churn product that we had built and we were realizing that we want to go build this into churn key and go sell it to other SaaS companies. So once we decided like, okay, we know we're going to want to go work on churn key, like managing employees on the wave side and doing that was going to be too much. So we decided that, okay, it's probably in the next year going to be time to sell the business. Uh, the first thing we did was go to a broker and kind of started to build a relationship and figuring out, okay, what's the market look like? It, you know, let's figure out our valuation things like that. Um, and then we, December of last year, we, we were actually going to sign with a broker uh, in March, but in December, we just, it was weird. Like right before Christmas, we got five inbound emails from SaaS portfolio companies that, you know, buy and grow mm -hmm. SaaS uh, portfolio companies. Uh, we just got five in a week and just decided like, Hey, but you know, we'll go with a broker in Q1, but let's spend a month just talking to these people and see what happens. And we really hit it off with Calm Capital. And uh, we realized that who we were going to sell it to was really important. Um, and they were also local, which was really interesting to us. So um, we just kind of went down that road and wound up selling it to them a couple months later. 
That's awesome. And just easy peasy, right? Like just a couple sentences, like no, 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 <laughs> no challenges whatsoever along the way. Yeah. Uh, Man, even, <laughs> yeah. And they were amazing to work with. Uh, it was really interesting actually that all of our negotiations happened in Slack, which was this really nice. Oh AC. It was kind of awesome that like we, we put the contract in Slack and then we would pull out, um, you know, clauses and put them in and start a thread and talk about them. And um, so even though it was like this very, very diligent process, working with them was was really great. Oh, um, that is absolutely awesome, dude. Yeah, it's a lot of work. So uh, and I, I want to pull back the onion a little bit on this. It, going back there, did you have what level of understanding did you have on valuations before you started talking to the brokers? Not much. We had we had entertained an offer a year before. And so we knew that most buyers were looking at trailing 12 months with some type of multiple, mm -hmm. but that was kind of it. Um, we really just did a lot of, re I mean, there's a lot of content out there um, that we started, re you know, researching and looking into. But before that, we didn't really know much. So as you're talking to different brokers, um, and you don't have to name any names, but like, what was your observation of the different types of brokers out there, how their fees structured and whether you felt good about them or you didn't feel good about them? Just what's your thoughts on it? Yeah, we talked to a few, uh, we liked them and, and you know, the fee structure, which was generally, I think 10% was about kind of the, you know, of the sales of online space. Yeah. 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 It seemed about industry standard. Um, you know, we really did be, it, really because it was our first acquisition sale, we were more interested in using a broker because we just didn't want to make any mistakes. Um, and we found a few that we want, and one especially that we really liked. And we liked the idea of taking it to, like actually taking it to the broader market and seeing what's coming mm -hmm. back. The thing we didn't like was, and it's not their fault, it was just the time frame. I mean, it was, it's six to 12 months working with a broker um, for the, you know, the packaging, getting it out, going through everything. Um, and with this direct deal with Calm Capital, we got it done in three uh, with $7,000 in closing costs, which was amazing. We just hired a lawyer kind of in the last, uh, mm -hmm. kind of the last inning. Um, so that was kind of so, the difference was, you know, a broker would kind of package it up and, you know, be more professional, I guess. And, but it's just going to take a lot longer. Um, mm -hmm. And we were, we were ready to get cranking on turnkey. So we kind of uh, went the other route. Which makes sense, and I just just a couple of comments too is like in because in the online space, you know, you got brokers, and there's not as many investment bankers. And I don't know if you're familiar with the difference are, but like, I mean, you're talking controlled auction securities, different capital structures, mm -hmm. and like, you know, very different than a broker uh, typically, and especially like on an investment banker side, it's dealing with like net proceeds and the tax and the legal. They're quarterbacking yeah. a lot of this stuff versus kind of you know, the, the typical brokers. And there's really good brokers out there. It's just a different type of service. And so like, as I've, you know, over the last five years, it's like, okay, like, cause we, my dad and I didn't use an investment banker and I wish we would have, but like, if you had the choice between a broker and you had some people sitting at the, you know, right there, you can immediately save 10%. And I just like, I'm curious on your thoughts. So you say, you know, we only spent seven grand. Do you think you, cause a lot of people do that in even very large, very large sales Baird. We're mm -hmm. like, they're like, Oh yeah, I'm just going to, you know, I got a buyer sitting here and it's a $25 million sale. And it's like, dude, you're going to go, you're, you're trying to save a half a million bucks, but they're going to get you 2 million more. Mm -hmm. I mean, did you, did you kind of weigh the options, whether it was seven grand that you're saving or you're only going to spend seven grand, but did you, did you feel like the, the price and the, the, the offers that were sitting there were kind of equivalent to what you would get out there and 
you just yeah, saving that, the percent. Yeah, I mean, maybe this wasn't the right play, but we so we inter, we kind of picked five um, different portfolio companies um, and kicked off due diligence, and we got offers from all five of them, and mm-hmm. they they all felt we really were. It was all pretty. I'd say they were all like twenty percent within twenty percent of one another, but the you big difference was. Yeah, so we felt like we got a you know a small gauge of the market. Now, I mean, a year later, now I would maybe think differently because there's so much liquidity out there that you may be able to really turn uh, people. There's just so many people looking to place money that um, maybe now would be different. But this was way before COVID. So um, mm-hmm. actually, no, this was just yeah, no, this was well, no, I guess about the same time. But um, anyway, it's just heating up. I mean, I mean, you yeah. go back six months. It's just, I mean, it's. Yeah, I'm seeing the same thing, by the way. Like, I mean, yeah. six, seven to eight months ago, by the time this even gets launched, which will be six weeks from now, it's yeah, going to be even, probably gonna be even hotter. Yeah, but so, but, but to your point, you saw the fact that like, hey, here's a rough gauge. And if you can mm-hmm. save 10% of enterprise value by not going with a broker, I mean, that's yeah. money right in your guys' pocket. Yeah, yeah. And also, it was a, it was a pretty simple business from a operations and legal structure and we didn't have any debt no employees no liabilities there was no there's not really much tricky about it outside of just how we wanted to structure the deal with the buyer so Mm -hmm. um, and Mm -hmm. i don't think we were planning on this but we learned a ton and it was you know next time going into an act going through (laughs) that it's gonna you know we're gonna be able to move a lot quicker yeah well and i like like i said man when i when i read your article on turnkey i was like they, they, they understood what, ha- like what you guys went through, man. Like it was very well written and you're talking about the TPM and normalized. Yeah, no, it's like, this is awesome. And, and you, you also were very, uh, what I gathered, like, cause you said you picked a SaaS portfolio company and not a private equity firm. And like, mm-hmm. and again, like that's, I mean, so we have an education business and like, I want people to be that intentional and that articulate with what they want and the trade-offs. And most mm-hmm. people don't know that they got to go through what's in front of them and don't know the difference. And so yeah. what was your thoughts about Calm Capital versus private equity versus SaaS portfolio companies? What, like, how did you guys go through that decision-making process? Well, we, we knew that we did not want this business uh, pulled into parts in any way. Like we didn't want anybody buying us and, you know, we also didn't really want our product integrated into something else or, you know, some type of roll up situation. Um, we really didn't want, um, I'm not even sure if this is usual. We kind of just assumed sometimes private equity might buy you and just kind of run, you just run the business forever and milk every little profit out without actually putting anything into it. So mm-hmm. we knew that we, we definitely didn't want a buyer that was going to do that. Um, we wanted somebody that understood SaaS companies. Um, so that's why we kind of focused on these SaaS portfolio businesses. And we wanted somebody that was going to, we felt that there was still a lot of opportunity in the business. We just weren't the people, we were the zero to one people. We wanted somebody to take it from one to 10. Mm -hmm. Um, so we wanted somebody with more operational experience. We were looking that's, that's what we were looking for. And as far as the deal goes with calm, they let uh, we structured the deal to where we keep some upside through uh, performance payouts over the years, um, and, okay. and we're still equity advising. Or out or what? Um, just earn out. Um, okay. So awesome. yeah, no equity. So that was something else that we felt like it's like oh, we need to sell this business so we can move on, but we feel like there's a lot of potential still. So we wanted to hold on to some of that upside. Obviously, that takes the initial mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. 
purchase price down a little or the lump sum down, but um, we were able to kind of find a nice balance, which was good. Well, I, I totally agree, man. And like, I don't know if you saw different terms between the five buyers because like it, there's so, so many few. choices. Yeah. Like there's so many mm -hmm. choices that people have to make and they don't really understand like, okay, so there's a dollar amount, but then there's the structure and then there's mm -hmm. what they're going to do with it. And like, hey, like, yeah, was there any, was it just, like, did you guys have any sort of like way of comparing the world of possibilities against each other? Um, well, we knew we wanted, um, we knew we wanted the majority of it up front because we needed to, you know, well, we needed, we all have families and things that we want to do personally. So we wanted to make sure that we capitalized mm -hmm. on that. May, actually, the real reason we want to do that is take risk off the table because we've been mm -hmm. living on risk for five years straight. Um, mm -hmm. And then, so we, we wanted to be like 70% up, 80% up front and then 20 with a smaller portion held out over time with, uh, with the ability for upside. It's just, the entrepreneurs in us, I guess, always wanting to gamble a little bit. And uh, how much did you have earmarked for personal versus plowing it back into turnkey, or like, how, like, <laughs> what was your risk appetite as far as what to do with the the funds? Um, that is actually a really great question and a good point. That um, you know, people. I think this is kind of maybe general to all business. That you know, it's all. Sorry to put this clearly. I didn't know. Um, and I hadn't thought about that. <laughs> I appreciate um, the honesty, man, because most people don't. Yeah. It's like, yeah. What are you I mean, doing? Yeah. It's like, you know, looking, kind of looking back, I'm glad we sold it and we needed to sell it. That's what the business needed. But looking back, it was like, I, I kind of sold without having a very good reason outside of working on turnkey. So then you get this lump sum in the door and you're like, what do I do with all this cash? Like, I don't really have any specific place to deploy it. Um, uh, so I think that's the top of the market, right? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. It's like, yeah, what a great time to I'll just plow it all into Bitcoin. Let's see what happens. Uh, <laughs> and after using Bitcoin, let's do it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so, um, yeah, it, I think that's something if you're thinking about selling your business, I do think it's a good question to say, like, why? You know, obviously, we all want a, a good payday for when we sell the business. But then the question is, what, then what? What are you going to do? Um, so I wish I had maybe a little bit of a better plan there. Um, because Chernkey wasn't something that we needed to, we're trying to bootstrap it as well. Mm -hmm. So we're almost trying to artificially create some, um, some scarcity there so that we kind of push it and build it the right way. So yeah, maybe, uh, maybe next time that's what I'll keep going back to like, next time. I'll know what, uh, I'll know what to do. I'll know. Well, what I mean, like I said, man, that's the whole point of this show. Like that's exactly why I started. Cause I went after we sold and I was just like, I had to, we had to fire like two thirds of our employees and I was sitting, I went from running a $20 million company to then sitting in a cube next to an intern. I was like, yep. well, this is not what I <laughs> really anticipated. And it was just like, so it just tr truly, I, and I'll, I'll tell you a funny story, Baird. Uh, There's a guy, uh, Sonny Vanderbeck. He's a fantastic dude. He, uh, he, he wrote, uh, he rose, raised 1.5 billion close to, uh, for wow. equity with an indefinite hold period with conscious capitalism as the investment theme. Fantastic. And he goes, he was sitting there with this, he goes, yeah, one of my buddies is a private equity firm. And he goes, he, so he's listening to his friend tell a story going, yeah, we bought this company. We were screaming growth. We got an awesome management team. We're making a bunch of money and we're going to sell it. And then Sonny goes, well, what are you going to do with the money? He goes, we're going to find a company with an awesome management team is screaming growth. <laughs> it's just like, oh, it's so funny. Yeah. But again, even private equity firms, man, people, it, 
it's just an interesting thing, right? Everybody's kind of chasing that thing. Is my my partner calls it the proverbial dog that catches the car, then you go, now what? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, yeah, definitely similar experience for us. Um, yeah, we've I uh, lost my train of thought there, but yeah, it's kind of a hard balance for us because as I was talking about in the first part of the show, was I am like inherently this creator and I want to go create more things, but I need to make sure that again, I'm doing it for the right reasons because I'm mm -hmm. interested and curious, not that I'm like, um, you know, just doing it just to build a big business. Uh, it's a great point. It's like, uh, I realized looking, I just realized this like a couple of weeks ago as again, trying to figure out investments mm -hmm. and you know where to, where to put, put money. You know, when you build a business that is appealing to acquirers, it's usually one of the best assets in the world. Like it's usually running really well. It's growing, it's sustainable and like a, a, a growing, especially a SaaS business with good margins that's sustainable. Like you, it, it's, there's no better asset um, in my opinion. So it's like kind of interesting. Why not own it? Why not yeah, exactly. Own it? Well, yeah, exactly. So, well, and this is what's super interesting, man. And like, and this is exactly like the, the epiphanies that I love seeing people go through our training with because they're going, huh? Like, cause I, I've got like people, I'm like, you're making a couple million dollars in EBITDA. And like, well, I hate deal with an insurance. I'm like, you could hire a $250,000 executive every two months. Yep. Like, yeah. like, and then just, like I said, I, I gave a presentation last week in front of EO and I said, who has an investment in Apple? And everybody pretty much raises their hand. I'm like, who works at the genius bar? I'm like, no one. I'm like, you don't have to work in the business. You have to build a good business. Are you, are you yep. familiar with that, uh, Baird ESAPs at all? I just no. love talking about it. So check this out, man. If you build a company with sustainable, predictable, transferable cash, which is just a good company, and I'll send you a bunch, and the, the listeners hear me talk about this probably entirely too much, but um, you sell to your employees, but you have to have about, call it 15 to 20 employees and about a valuation of 5 million bucks. So a million dollars in EBITDA, 5 million, kind of the baseline uh, numbers. You can sell your company and the ESAP trust buys the business of call it like a five times multiple. And then, so you get a third to a half of your money up front, the other third to half of your money with mess financing rates, call it 10 to 12%, which by the way, name a place you can get that anywhere. And nope. guess what? You can still run your company. You still get your salary. You still get to be able to deal with the strategic direction of it. And you get to vest back into the business along with your employees. That's pretty cool. What's, I know, so what's that? What's that stand for? The ESET employee employee stock ownership plan. Got it. Program. It is, uh, and also I've I've interviewed Jack Stack, and I've got an investment banker that I've interviewed. I'll send you uh, I'll put the listeners. I'll put the the links in the show notes again to reference them back. But this is the whole point: is choices, and it's so interesting because mm -hmm. you're so. What I find so intriguing is that you're such an intentional person and you're so aware of like what you like to do. And most people don't know you can have the money and build a good business and have the creative juices all at the same time. Mm -hmm. And ESAP's not right for everybody, but it's just like having these choices because like you said, you got cashed out and now you're trying to figure out what to put your money into and have other businesses. It's like, man, you could just, there's so many options out there. Yeah. Yeah. I try to remind myself on a regular basis that, there's no rules. I spent a lot of my life thinking, you know, going to school, you know, hitting all the checkpoints because there were rules. There were, I had, it felt like I had to, you know, appease all the rules that everybody was telling me I had to do. And then there's a moment early in entrepreneurship where things were actually working for the first time. Like, wait, 
there there's no rules we can we can design this however we want Isn't um, that the truth, man? and it's just uh, it's such a it's it's gonna be hard if i ever have to go back so i need to keep um keep sustain stay sustainable there, right there, exactly there's like a guy on my show years ago he goes and I, I i steal his quote all the time he goes i'm now as an entrepreneur i'm professionally unemployable yep <laughs> i was thinking about that the other day like i don't know what job i could apply for it's like I don't even know what my skill set would fit now. Yeah, so exactly. I, gotta, I, I don't have a choice. <laughs> Man, this has absolutely been a blast, Baird. Um, two questions as I wrap up. Uh, I love asking people what the word intentional means because the name of the show. For you, what does the word intentional mean? Intentional. I think of what I. What do you personally want? What is it that you want out of life? And I think see a lot of people that just don't really distill that down to figure out and write down. Um, you, it's hard to get a bunch of things out of life. Like you can probably only get a couple. And I think uh, one thing that was really helpful for me was to just, I've got a, I've got a list of four, maybe you can do five. I don't know, but you can't do much more than that. There's just not enough time and not enough focus. So you need to decide and rank. What is it that you want out of life? What are, what are you going to be intentional about? Uh, because that's where your time needs to go. And I think it's really easy to have those out of order mixed up. And it's hard to, especially in entrepreneurship, it's hard It's hard to make progress when those are out of, out of whack. Wow, man, that was awesome. Uh, if people want to follow you, find your companies, what you're doing these days, what's the best place to find you? Yeah, find me on uh, Twitter and LinkedIn. Um, it's at Baird Hall on Twitter. And then LinkedIn's the same. Uh, there's not many Baird Halls running around. So um, you should be able to find me pretty easy. And uh, check out Churnkey. That's our new uh, push. We're getting this off the ground and um, getting our first customers in the door. It's been really exciting. Um, any SaaS companies out there struggling with um, churn, we could we can definitely help. Baird, this has been an absolute blast, man. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Baird. I think that was a blast. Um, if there's any takeaways that I have is I, I truly believe that if you understand the financial part of how a company creates value, how it's valued and how the ownership structure works versus the management roles, when you have multiple partners like Baird does and you're launching new products and you've got this cash flow that might have different components tied to it, instead of have you know we call it like when people get entity happy where they're creating a bunch of different entities in order to solve different partnership uh you know different partnership timelines and investment strategies or the different roles that partners are going to have in the different areas by understanding the financials what creates value how to manage equity partners and and the long-term value of this financial asset and how that's different than a management role that you get a w-2 paycheck for for the role that you're playing in that company by understanding those two and having the clear financial literacy on how that all works i think people have a a bigger playbook in order to deal with the partnership challenges. And I, my point is, I think that Baird might've had other options available to him on how they combine these different companies, leverage the customers and leverage their ecosystem without having to sell. Obviously it was a really good outcome for him, but I just think, you know, to, to dive in and stay in that creative zone that you might want or the specific role that you might want, your ability to stay where you want to stay and play in the area that you want to, might hinge upon literally understanding the financials so you can guarantee or you know increase the options or the, the, the probability that you can be in that spot while also not 
having to sell the financial asset that is continuing to grow. So uh, big takeaway is go check out the Intentional Growth Online Training if you want to know more about how this all works to clarify that path towards a more valuable business so you can actually make progress towards that uh, vision that you got. Go check it out at arcona.com or text the word intentional to 66866 and you'll get the vision Intentional Growth Vision Board with five videos that'll help you fill out the vision board to get clear on where you're going. Thanks for tuning in and I will see you next week.